Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 599 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday, it is January 2nd, 2011, and what does that mean? It is Groundhog Day. I don't think the groundhogs are coming out. Maybe in Puxatawney and all these other places they claim to be the original groundhog where they grab the groundhog and they pull out the pet groundhog and they pretend to talk to him. Maybe that groundhog is coming out. But from Texas uh, to the northeast and back, I don't think groundhogs are coming out of their holes today at all. And what does that say? Shadow or no shadow, no early spring this year, man. It is a frozen wasteland out there. Uh, what are we going to talk about today from my little frozen wasteland in North Texas where it is currently 11 degrees? Um, we are going to talk about handguns today and selecting the right handgun for you, for your individual needs, and specifically selecting handguns as defensive tools. We're not really going to talk about handguns as hunting implements at all today. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here Monday through Friday, five days a week, just about 52 weeks out of the year. Occasionally I go away, but even then I try to leave a show behind for you. Uh, today's sponsor of the day number one is KnifeKits.com. That's, again, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is an awesome provider of everything you need to become your own bladesmith and make your own custom knives. You can do this if you just kind of want to get started with something that's sort of akin to, remember when you were kids and they had models and you would go and like maybe the first model car or model train or model plane or whatever you would build would be a snap together kit. Everything would kind of just kind of fit together for you. You wouldn't have to use any glue and instead of painting it you would use stickers. Well, it ain't the same thing, but it's kind of that mentality. You got everything in one package and everything is pre-fit to a degree and you do the final form fit uh, and finish and, and sharpening. Or you can get raw materials and build a custom knife from the ground up and anything in between that. You can also get great videos and instructional materials on building knives. So it is a great place. They also give 5% off to all members of the member support brigade. So if you're part of the support brigade, make sure you get your discount. But check out KnifeKits.com. I mean, these guys even have mammoth tusk material to make handles with. That tells you if there's something in the knife industry that you want, they probably have it. So check out KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, one of the really great you know, owner-operated companies out there. A guy takes care of his customers every single time. Zero complaints about service. Zero complaints about delivery. Zero anything other than praise from the audience for Sawtooth. And every order that I've ever heard about that's been placed there has been positive. I've ordered a lot of things from Jeff at Sawtooth myself, including... Uh, uh, a bunch of PMAGs recently, and he threw all kinds of little extra goodies in there, uh, some chem lights and stuff like that. And I don't think it was because I was Jack Spirico. I think it was just because that's how he treats his customers, especially if he knows that you found him from the Survival Podcast, because I hear about that all the time. So check out Sawtooth Tactical so you can get all the things you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Next up today, remember to connect with us, especially with our social media outlets like Facebook and Twitter. Been having a lot of fun on Twitter yesterday. Been tweeting about this global warming that's iced in my entire backyard. Uh, I've been tweeting about Groundhog Day and things like that. Uh, if you're not on, on, on Twitter or Facebook, you're not going to see that stuff. 
So make sure you connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, I am the Survival Pod C. On Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash survival podcast. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to only 20 vendors. And guess what, folks? I just heard today from Victory Seeds. I won't get them entered until this afternoon, but Victory Seeds is now doing 10% off all seed orders. Uh, so that is a great company with a lot of great unique varieties of seed. I've talked to the owner directly by email over there. We have a lot in common. He's huge on supporting the prepper community, and he was very excited to be able to get together with us and do something like this. This is the first thing like this they've ever done, and they uh, they had to kind of hurdle some technical obstacles to get it done. So it took them a couple days, but right from the beginning they wanted to do it. So once I get that up, if you're in the MSB, do consider you know, this is the time of year to order some seeds anyway. Give those guys a bit of business. Remember, high mowing also does free shipping. So those two, when you're ordering your seeds, since they're supporting us, you support them. Uh, but that's just one example. I've got some other things coming to the MSB. I'm working with Seed Savers Exchange. They should be doing $10 off your first year of membership. Uh, so that's a pretty good discount. That's 25% off membership fees over there. So I'm working to make it better. I even have talked to the president of Rain Tree Nursery. Uh, he will be coming on the show Monday, and I'll see if I can swing some type of a discount with Rain Tree because unlike the seed providers, they provide the plants. So just an example of how I'm working real hard to keep making this program better than it's ever been. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I've been hesitant to do this, and I want to tell you why, because I, I think maybe if I tell you why I've been hesitant, it'll open your mind and open your ears and open your hearts to today's show to where you get more out of it. And you don't go, well, this is what I expected. I expected him to give me ten models of guns and discuss five calibers. And we'll discuss some calibers and, and tell me whether to buy a revolver or a semi-auto. And odds are the people who would be the least, the most disappointed by today's show would be the people that have already decided I'm going to buy a Glock 19 or a Springfield XD and 40 Smith. They've already made up their mind. And they're just looking for me to come in and justify their decision. And that's not what I'm here to do today. I'm here to help you figure out when you're buying your first handgun or your next handgun or your last handgun, whatever it is, what do I need to buy for my unique situation? And, and, and some of the reasons I've been hesitant to do this is, first of all, and this statement will make more sense in 15 minutes than it will right now, there is no place that I know of in all the subjects that we could talk about on the Survival Podcast where opinions are more broad and everybody's right, but everybody thinks everybody else is wrong than when it comes to handgun selection. There, even with rifles, we can split hairs between 306 and 308 and stuff like that, but there is a broad spectrum in the world of rifles. And there's a broad set of applications in the world of rifles. With handguns for self-defense, we're being very specific. Our choices are not as great as we seem to believe they are. And the other guy's not wrong because he picks something other than yours. And you're not wrong because you pick something other than him. And there's so much of this, this dogma in the world of handguns I don't like doing a show where I know I'm going to get like 500 people upset with me because I don't agree with you. So today's show is really not about what I think. It's about helping you understand. And that way we can get away from, you know, personally I don't like the 40 Smith and Wesson. And oh my God, there go the keyboards right now. Wait till I get to it, I'll explain why. But I made that statement before kind of offhand. And I got like 400 emails from people that were all like, why don't you like the 40 Smith? Because I personally don't. 
I'll explain why later. But that's an opinion. That doesn't mean that if you own one, I think you should go trade it in on something else. The next one is because there's already so much material out about this. My good friend Eric Shelton does a show called The Handgun Podcast. He's got like 130, 131 episodes. 90% of those episodes focus on nothing but handguns because it's the Handgun Podcast. So if you want information on handguns, there's as much out there as you could ever want. And I don't like to redo other people's work. I like to bring unique content that is my own to you. So that's another reason I've held off. Last is... To me, I, I've kind of said this already, when you choose a handgun, this is personal. It's all about you. It's not about me. It's not about your buddy. It's not about the guy that owns a school and he trains people. That's great. I think handgun training is important. I'm going to talk about it. We have a new sponsor just came on this month that provides training. I think they do a great job, or I wouldn't have brought them on as a sponsor. But just because someone runs a school doesn't mean that their word on what handgun you should have as definitive and final. In fact, I don't think that the uh, new, new sponsor has that opinion at all. right? Because their, their thing is, bring whatever gun you have, we'll teach you how to use it. But I don't care if the person's a Navy SEAL. I don't care, because you know what? You're not going to be a Navy SEAL. So I don't care that the SEALs use a SIG 226. I think it's a great gun. I own one. I, I, I don't think you could do much better for you know a medium to, to full-size frame 9mm semi-auto uh, handgun. I think it's an awesome gun. But it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that that is the only right weapon. Because, again, you're not a SEAL. And you're not going to be a SEAL, and you're not going to do the things that SEALs do. right? And if you are, then you don't need to listen to this show about handguns, because they'll issue you one, and if you don't like it, you'll buy what you want. And you're purpose-trained. So... I don't care. I, I love James Jaeger, right? But I don't care that he says a Glock 19 is the only answer, and if not, you're wrong. I don't care that that's his opinion. That's his opinion. That's fine for him. For you as an individual, you need to look at a lot of things. What type of clothing do you wear? What size hands do you have? Can you carry concealed at all? If you live in a state where you cannot carry concealed, your choices are going to be dramatically different. You might not even care to own a handgun on all other than for the purpose of having one and knowing how to use it. And having it for situations where things may change. Let's say the shit is the fan, you're going to have to go out and even though it's against the law, you're going to carry anyway. I can't advocate that day to day, but let's say the whole society is broken down. So now I've got one as a preemptive thing. But I'm going to make a very different choice than a, you know, for that than a person who lives in South Texas where the temperature averages over 80 degrees year-round and always wears shorts and a t-shirt. So, personal. So, with that in mind, let's start talking about making that decision and first understanding some things. The first thing I have to tell you about is, is going to sound like really has nothing to do, but it has everything to do. And it's kind of my version of the disclaimer this time. You know, get training, be safe, learn what you're doing. Don't just go out and buy a gun and start using it. But deeper than that is the motivation. So I want to first tell you what no gun can ever do for you. I got an email from a person I consider mentally disturbed yesterday. And this guy was upset. First of all, he sent me an email bashing Muslims, which you're not going to bash any race of people to me without getting some answer back. And it was about Tyson chicken products. And, you know, they got rid of Memorial Day and, and they, 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 they are celebrating Ramadan. And it turned out when I looked it up that the, uh, and this will make sense here in a second, that the, um, the company had not made the change. It was at one facility where the workers union there, 
uh, and, and the primary uh, demographic of those workers was Muslim, had asked them to make the change. And I emailed the guy back and said, hey, if you want to hate Tyson Chicken, hate them for the way they t- treat chicken, hate them for the way they treat chicken farmers, hate them for the way they treat migrant workers, and hate them for the crap they put in our food supply. Those are great reasons to hate them. Don't tell me to hate them because they gave a union what they asked for at one facility and swapped a religious holiday for a holiday. Let's face it, folks. You know what Labor Day is? Labor Day is not like Memorial Day. People think it has something to do with the military. Labor Day is Labor Day. It's a communist high holiday. It's May Day. So I don't really care if they swap that out. That's between the workers and them. I have lots of reasons to hate Tyson Chicken. So then we ended up in an email exchange for like, Ten times, where he insisted I never emailed just crap to you in the first place, and and, and you know here's a, a million reasons to hate these people anyway. So finally I said, dude, look at the header of your email. Stop emailing me. And then he went off on what he was really upset with me about. You don't tell the people of the of, the, of your audience enough about the new world order. You think that they should all be armed with a BB gun and they can walk into a FEMA camp with that. And on and on and on it went. And here's the point, and this has how it comes back to guns. People that make statements like that, no matter how much bravado they project, are living a life in fear. Okay, they're living afraid. They're not personally empowered. They prefer to make the danger some dark secret society like the New World Order. And when I talk about, when I say New World Order, what I mean is a movement toward world government that's very coordinated and very out in the open that I don't like and I want to resist. But when they say New World Order, they need this little, this little place in the shadows where there's like 12 people that control everything and they want to wipe you out and kill you all. And they feel, as crazy as it sounds, they feel safer pushing that fear into some dark realm that cannot be understood instead of looking at all the real dangers that sit here staring us in the face every day. They're coming from a place of fear. And if that's you, whether you share that common fear or you have any other fear and you're coming from a place of fear, what I want you to understand when it comes to finding a gun, getting training, and carrying it with you, while it can increase your confidence level, it will never fill that hole that is fear in your heart, your mind, and your soul. It won't. It's like trying to fill. It's the same thing that happens when a person keeps going into more and more debt because they have the hole in their lives because they're not living a human lifestyle and they're living a deprived lifestyle. And they think if I just buy the next shiny glitzy thing and throw it into that hole in my soul, it'll fill it up and it never does. And they just keep buying more and more crap and then they end up $30,000 in debt. Same thing. You can't fill your fear hole with guns and ammo. You have to solve that problem And then you don't carry the gun because you think you're Billy Badass. You carry the gun because you're confident in who and what you are. You believe you have a right to your life and to your safety. And you care enough about others that you want to protect their right to life and safety. And you understand that even though you're confident, you have limitations. And that's what it really comes down to. That no matter how tough you are, if you are an Olympic-trained boxer, Kung Fu, I don't care what you are, Navy SEAL, Special Forces Green Beret, Russian Specknot, whatever you are, there are situations that you cannot handle unarmed. So, to fill in your limitations, not your fear, you carry a weapon of some sort. If you come from that angle, you are a good candidate to own a sidearm. 
a gun, right? If you don't, then you got work to do personally. Because you're not going to get anywhere with this. It's going to be like trying to plant seeds in the middle of the desert with no irrigation. And this is where we get people to do stupid shit. All right, and, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold back any blunt language today. And if you're looking for a show with no blunt language, turn it off now because I'm gonna be real with you. We get people doing stupid shit when they try to fill a fear hole and they go out and arm themselves, and the fear doesn't go away. And they're the ass clowns that go into places and shoot Congress people and little kids. They are not us. They are not us. And if you have that fear, please solve the fear before you worry about arming yourself. The next thing is, why do we carry a handgun in the first place? Not why do we have a weapon, not why do we bear arms, why do we carry a handgun? Of all the weapons that are out there, from non-lethal to lethal, everything from a fly swatter to an M1 Abrams tank, and obviously we can't buy the M1 Abrams and the Fleischwater won't do much good for us. But to make the point, with the broad spectrum of what's available, AR platforms, AK platforms, shotguns, revolvers, semi-autos, big guns, little guns, tiny guns, huge guns, machine guns, assault weapons. Of all the things that we could choose, why the hell would we choose a handgun? Is it because they're cool? No. Is it because they, uh, they're the best tool for defending yourself. No. We only carry a handgun for one reason. It is impractical to carry a carbine or a rifle or a shotgun. That is the only reason. And no matter what you want to try to wrap around that or explain away, if the purpose of the gun is self-defense, then you want the most efficient, most effective weapon to provide that self-defense. And the number, and that means that when you use it, your life is in jeopardy and danger and you are you or someone else will die or probably will die if you do not act. That is when you shoot somebody. Not because you're angry, not because you're pissed off, not because you're having a confrontation, but because you're in a conflict that has escalated to a point where you have to act to preserve life. And in that instance, the wounded person is still capable of taking a life. So you want the fight over quickly and efficiently. You want, boom, done. Shotguns do that. Rifles do that. Handguns often fail to do that. Handguns are inherently limited in power, in range, and in killing capability. Because they are smaller and do less damage than rifles and shotguns. So, since we're carrying for self-defense... The only reason we're relying on a handgun is because it's impractical to have a weapon better suited for the job. So, this is what I was talking about earlier. If you live in a place where you can't conceal carry and you're buying your first gun for defense, you're going to be much better off with, you know, a shotgun with a 20-inch barrel. I have lots of handguns. I have lots of long guns. If you come sneaking around my house after dark when I'm upstairs laying in bed, what you're probably going to end up, you know, pointed at you is a 20 gauge shotgun with three inch magnum and four, number four buck, and you probably won't know it until you're laid flat out on the ground dead. Now, my 45 is kept very close to where my shotgun is. Why do I pick the shotgun up in that scenario? It's a better tool for the job. If we do not understand that we are taking the choice to carry a limited weapon. Due to the situation, we'll make poor decisions for ourselves. 
such as, I can't tell you how many times I see people at a gun store well, I'm buying the gun for my wife. Wife's not even with them. First mistake. And then, you know, they want this small gun for their wife. And are you going to carry concealed? No. Does she going to carry concealed? No. Then you don't want a small gun for your wife. But she's small. Well, first of all, you bring her in because you don't know how small her hands really are until she puts them on the gun and can she control it. But a heavier gun and a gun with a little more size to it is going to be easier to shoot. It's going to have less felt recoil and since you're not carrying it anyway. But then we need to be saying, well, if you're not going to carry it, do you have any other defensive weapons at home? Why are you buying the handgun? Now, look, this is not, you don't need one. This is not anti-first or anti-second amendment. This is making the right choice based on the resources you have available. If you have a nice shotgun, nice rifle, and you want a handgun for potential civil breakdown when you may have to conceal it, or one day you might get a concealed carry, or you just want to shoot it and you want to learn, fine. But if we're buying for defense, buy the best tool for the job first. We carry handguns because we can conceal them on our body, and when we're working or playing, and we're out away from our homes, or we're in our backyards, where we can't be walking around with a, with a shotgun slung over our back, or an AR slung over our back, we can be armed without visually demonstrating that, and it's much more convenient for us to go about our daily lives. And it's better than a sharp stick. We have to understand that. The next thing is, TV ain't even close to reality. If you are making any part of your decision based on anything you've ever seen on a TV in your life, get it out of your head and quit it. TV ain't reality. If you're looking at something and you're seeing in your head, well, if I'm in a firefight, I'll be moving over here. And, I'll do, and you're, you're basing that on some movie you watched about a SEAL team storming a building. First of all, it was bullshit because SEAL team storm buildings, not with handguns. It's a backup tool. Or a situational tool. Right? They're gonna use carbines. Why? Better for the job. TV ain't reality. Please understand that. And whatever firefight scenario is in your brain ain't reality. It doesn't work that way. Unless you've been trained specifically to civilian conflict. Unless you've had that type of training. And understand it's quickness, it's viciousness, it's randomness. Whatever you think is wrong. So let it go, because that's nothing to do with making the right decision in the first place. The next one we need to do, because this is going to help you understand why two people sitting around debating 9mm or 40 Smith and Wesson are really wasting time, energy, and mental uh, calories, is how do bullets kill? And this is going to be way overly simplified, and I'm sure surgeons and doctors and ballisticians as well would tell me all the additional things I'm leaving out, but I'm going to give you everything you really know to understand how bullets kill. They kill through two main ways, penetration and shock, and both matter. Both matter a hell of a lot. Penetration is vitally important, and it's why... When we hear nonsense like, well, those rounds just pencil through, the person saying it doesn't really know what the hell they're talking about. Because let's face it, if I take an arrow for a bow and arrow, which is the field point on it, and I walk up to you and I ram it through your chest and out your back and it goes completely through one of your lungs, you're going to have the worst day of your life and it might be the last bad day of your life. In fact, it's probably going to be the last bad day of your life because your lung's going to collapse. You'll probably die because if I stabbed you with the arrow, I probably didn't bring along a medical kit to help you and I'm probably not trying to get you to a hospital. So even though we haven't had a lot of shock damage from that, we've had pretty much 
100% penetrative damage because the lung was penetrated through both sides, we've got a real problem. The problem when we only use penetrative damage, even highly lethal penetrative damage, is that the person that receives the damage often does not stop sufficiently so that they're no longer a lethal threat to us. This is, again, if you're firing your weapon, it means your life or the life of someone else is in danger. And if that is not the case, you should not be firing your weapon, right? What that means is we need a quick, efficient stop. Whether that be from a kill or incapacitation, I don't really give a damn, but the person on the, on the receiving end needs to be completely incapable of, re, of doing whatever they were doing to get shot in the first place as quickly as possible. If I shoot you with a 22 long rifle, solid lead through your heart, in no time at all you'll find yourself dead. You might, from systemic shock, not bullet shock, but systemic shock, be incapacitated. But if you're keyed up, even mortally wounded in the heart, with a non-expanding round, sometimes two, four, six, eight seconds of continuation, or more, and it takes one second to die. And that's why we need to look at the shock value. Shock value, first of all, anything that penetrates has some shock value. There's some transfer of energy into, uh, the, into the target. Some amount of force is distributed through the tissue that's being damaged and destroyed. Even if we take something like a 22 and we shoot living tissue with it, we will, and if, if later we autopsy that tissue, we will see damage not just to the, the wound channel itself, but to the surrounding area. Now, there's three primary factors that will increase that shock damage, that surrounding tissue damage, um, both the direct surrounding area and the peripheral surrounding area. One is a heavier projectile. If we take a heavier projectile with the same penetration characteristics, moving at the same speed, mass times force or mass times acceleration equals force, so it will transmit more energy into the target. So that's one way. Two is we can increase the speed. Since, you know, uh, mass times acceleration equals force, if we increase the acceleration and we move the projectile at a higher speed into the target, we will increase the traumatic damage. And the last is the diameter, both when the projectile enters and during its, its it, as it traverses through and either ends up in the target deeply or exits the rear. So that's the expansion characteristics and the overall diameter of the bullet in the first place. Let me put it to you this way. If I shoot a deer, a human, anything with a uh, 44 caliber slug, it doesn't need to do anywhere near as much expansion as a 35 caliber slug to create the same style of wound channel because it starts out bigger to begin with. When someone's hit with a 50 caliber musket ball at a relatively modest velocity compared to modern firearms, as long as it goes in, it's going to do a tremendous amount of damage because it's already a half inch in diameter before it got started. When we add the three together, increased velocity, increased caliber and expansion characteristics, and increased weight, all of those things magnify the total foot-pounds of energy delivered to the body. 
Why is this important? Because when we look at handguns, that number is always low compared to a complete charge of buckshot or a rifle slug. It just is. Because there's less velocity, there's less weight, and generally speaking, calibers are smaller, or if the caliber's not smaller, the weight is still smaller, or the velocity is such that it all brings the whole equation down. And what does that mean? That means that the lethality difference between something like a 38 Special and a 357 Magnum are a hell of a lot different than the lethality scale difference between, let's say, a 270 Winchester and a 306 Springfield. We can argue those two forever. When it comes down to it, human or you know mid to large game, both are damn lethal. But when we look at a 38 Special versus a 357, we can have some meaningful differences there. And that's why there's all the debate. That's why there's all the opinions. That's why there's all the people that think you're underarmed with a 9mm, but you're fine with a 40 Smith & Wesson, and you're at overkill with a 45. To me, it's still all, it's still all about your personal needs and choice. The next thing I want to tell you is that hunting isn't self-defense, and self-defense isn't hunting. Is there are two entirely different worlds. One of the weapons that I would carry when it's really hot out and you're in light clothing is Bursa 380. It's a mid-priced, low-priced actually, as far as I'm concerned, a compact 380 pistol. Um, Some people love it, some people hate it, but I know a lot of law enforcement officers that carry it as a backup piece or an off-duty piece, trust their life to it every day. I've, I've got one, I've shot it t- tremendous amounts of time, I've never had, they had one failure to feed, one time, which I can't, I can't tell you any handgun I have I fired more than a thousand rounds out of that hasn't had at least one malfunction. Malfunctions are part of handguns. That's why you need to train to deal with malfunctions. And, um, a lot of people would say that, well, let's just stick with the hunting thing. I would never, ever, ever hunt with my Bursa 380. It would be just moronic. First of all, it would be illegal. But it just doesn't make any sense at all. Because, again, why do I carry a handgun? Because the situation dictates it. Even if I want the sporting aspect of handgun hunting, well, I'm going to be out there with a 41 Magnum or a 44. Uh, you know, depending on what I'm, I'm hunting, smaller deer, I might be out there with a nice 357 with a good, um, uh, you know, Keith style wad cutter or something like that. But, but I'm not going to use the typical defensive handgun for hunting. And I'm not even going to try to buy a defensive handgun that can be dual purpose. Those are two such purpose built different subjects. Now, does that mean that My Ruger Blackhawk 44 Magnum is not good for self-defense. It's probably better than what I carry. Whether I'm carrying my 45 or I'm carrying my 380, it doesn't really matter. If I had my choice and I still had to limit myself to a handgun, I'd rather have the Blackhawk. Why? Big hole. Immediate instant death. Right? Rate of fire, it's a single-action revolver. Not as concerned about it because one of those in the chest and it's probably the last bad day of your life. But the two worlds don't collide. And a lot of the stuff that we understand, and this is the important part, what we think we understand about bullets, 
and expansion characteristics and shock and all of these other things I talked about today are from advertisements to things like the American Rifleman where they show the Barnes bullet with the copper all uniformly peeled back and they show the ballistic gelatin and all that stuff like that. And at handgun velocities, all of those things are limited. The best bullet in the world doesn't perform the same way every time in the best rifle in the world And that is more true as we scale it back in velocity and weight and caliber and functionality. So we can overthink the hell out of things when it comes to calibers. And I've heard gun store clerks make stupid-ass statements to women trying to choose a gun to carry. Oh, with that 380, man, you got to be really on target. But if you got a 9mm, you have a little bit more margin of error. What planet are these morons from and how did they get a job selling anybody a gun? I promise you, with the right style of ammunition, if somebody pumps two or three rounds of .380 in you at the typical ranges that a woman would be assaulted at, you're going to be kind of slowed down in your uh, your aggression. And there's a good chance that sooner or later you're going to be laying in a pool of blood somewhere and a doctor's going to shake his head and we're going to hear this sound. Beep! Right? That's what's going to happen to you. If you shoot poorly with the 9mm, the attacker is going to be just as likely to continue attacking you as a 380. Does that mean that there's not more lethality? Does that mean there's not more foot-pounds of energy? Does that not mean that I can make a better case for a 9mm as a defensive round than a 380? It doesn't mean that at all. Of course I can. Everything I've explained to you about shock and penetration, if we look at all things being equal, But can that 111-pound lady that wants to buy a concealed carry handbag tuck that gun in there the same way, shoot it as well? Some people will say yes, some people will say no, and then they'll point to a woman who's 111 pounds, it's an ISPC championship that, that shoots, uh, champion that shoots 45s. But that's her. That's her. That's not you. So what I believe is that when you're going to make that decision, you actually should go to a place where you can rent guns. And you should get guns in different sizes and formats and calibers and, and pay 12 bucks an hour. And go out there and shoot the damn thing. And see if you're comfortable with it. Can it does it work well for you? Because I'm going to tell you this. Anybody out there is better off with a light-framed, 38 special with a two inch barrel than they are with a sharp pointed stick. And for all the talk about how ineffective that weapon might be from some people, and all the talk I've heard about, well, this caliber's not sufficient, and this might not, well, this will pencil through, and then the people survive this. I've never seen any of those people making those claims saying, hey, you know what? Why don't I show you how weak this weapon is? I'll stand here, shoot me a couple times, and watch the bullets bounce off. Because it doesn't happen. So we've really got to stick to this understanding that self-defense is about being able to implement the defense. If you can't draw the weapon, point the weapon, fire the weapon, and put the bullets where they need to go, put those rounds into center mass. And that's about training, and it's about situational limitations. You know, one firearms instructor I won't name here had a big argument with somebody saying, "Well, oh, this this handgun, of course it fits. Your your excuse that it doesn't fit your hands is nonsense." Basically, was what this guy said. He's full of shit. I'm sorry, I love the guy, but he's full of shit, right? 
Because maybe this person has hands half my size. I have what I consider mid to large size hands. I wear an extra large glove. To put it in perspective. You know? Well, maybe this person has got hands that are half my size. Is it reasonable that both of us are going to be comfortable shooting a weapon with the same dimensions? No. So, if you're not comfortable with the frame and the fit of a weapon, you're not going to be able to fire it well. You're not going to be able to do proper form. You're not going to be able to do all the things that a trainer is going to want you to do. And again, we have to keep an understanding, it ain't the movies, it ain't TV. You know, there was a fat guy named Cannon, a detective show. This guy used to shoot like helicopters out of the air with a snub, snub, Stumbo's 38. That ain't realistic. But I'll tell you what else isn't realistic. The concept that you're going to have to worry about making a 50-yard shot in a life-and-death situation involving a handgun. That's stupid. The threat has to be close enough to you to do you harm. And to give you no choice but to act lethally. So let me go through some calibers and I'll tell you what I think of them. 380. Um, I do admit that it's, I, I consider it a little bit underpowered, but some of the frames that it's available on and its shootability in those frames is just absolutely awesome. And two 380s in the chest is better than one 9mm in the chest. And I mean, that's, that's putting it as bluntly as I can. We also have to understand the 380, the 9mm, the 38 Special, and the 357 Magnum, same diameter, same caliber. They're all basically .357 caliber. So even though they all sound dramatically different, 380, 9mm, 38, .357, they're all .357 diameter slugs. So the only thing that changes is the velocity, the weight of the slug. So you'll find 380s that seem very high velocity, but when you look, they'll be, you know, putting out a 90 grain bullet versus maybe a 119 or 118 grain slug from a 9mm or even higher higher weight from the 9mm. So if I have a 90 grain slug and I have a 130 grain slug, doesn't even matter, but just right there, I have 40 grains of difference, traveling at the same velocity, one's going to penetrate better because heavier weight's going to get more penetration, one's going to cause more shock damage as well. But a good personal defense 380 slug expanding round is a very effective short-range weapon, and these are short-range range rep weapons. So that's why I personally carry a 380. It's because I can't shoot a higher caliber weapon. No, my standard carry gun, 1911 .45 ACP. Night and day between those two. But that gun doesn't carry well in a pair of board shorts and a tank top. It just doesn't. It's not comfortable, it's oversized, and let's face it, not a gunfight every day. Been exactly in zero gunfights in my life, if you don't count airsoft and, and paintball and crap like that. Never been shot at, never had to shoot at anybody. I hope to God when they lay me to rest in the ground, or more more with me, is, is light me on flames and, and send me off to Valhalla or whatever, sprinkle my ashes on the mountains, that I've never fired a gun at anybody and I've never been fired at. That would be my that would be my first choice. So I carry a gun for the potential that something I don't want to happen will happen, not in anticipation of it. And for having a barbecue in my backyard and some friends are over, I'm not going to be disarmed, but I don't need to be out there with a full-size weapon either. 
Next up is the 9mm. I think the 9mm is an awesome choice. Um, and despite the fact that I think James Yeager is full of crap when he says it's the 9, Glock 19 or you're wrong, I think it's a great gun. And I think a lot of the uh, platforms the 9mm is available in is a great self-defense round. I think it's imperative that you're using expanding bullets um, with a 9mm. I think it's imperative that whatever rounds you're using for self-defense in any gun, that you shoot those rounds a lot through that gun to make sure it doesn't cause malfunctions. Because I've seen people, they own a 9mm. Uh, yes, how many times you fire? They could, oh, 500, 1,000 times. Man, I practice with it all the time. What do you practice with? I practice with military ball. That's a full metal jacket. Well, you don't use that for self-defense, do you? Oh, no, no, I've got these talons, you know, left over from the, from the 90s and you could still get them, or I've got these hollow points or this hydroshock or whatever it is. And you say, well, have you ever fired those out of that gun? And they say, oh, no, they're so expensive. I'll tell you what's expensive. Intensive care. That's expensive. Uh, funerals are really freaking expensive. Average funerals over 10 grand. Uh, your family going on without you is freaking expensive. That's expensive. Putting a box or two of the rounds you're going to trust your life on through your weapon to make sure your weapon functions with them fully is cheap. So take the dadgone personal defense rounds and put them through your weapon. And if you don't do that, I can't put it any other way. Not previously, but after hearing it put to you that way, if you refuse to do that, you are a moron. You are trusting your life to something that's unproven. And that's just stupid. And there's no place for it. Again, I said I would be blunt today. I mean it. 9mm, fine. 38 Special. My problem with the 38 Special is that any frame, and by frame I mean the, the overall dimensions and make of the gun, any frame you can get 38 Special, you can get something almost identical in a 357 Magnum. So, to me, the 38 Special is best served as a practice tool. Now, I just said, put your active ammo, your self-defense ammo, through the gun to test it and make sure it functions properly. Since we're talking about revolvers here, it's less critical, but do it anyway. But, once you know it works, there's no reason you can't practice, especially people that are new shooters or a little bit intimidated by the weapon, with 38 Specials in that, that frame. And that's what I love about 38 357. I also think the revolver is extremely reliable, especially the hammerless stuff. Uh, Smith & Wesson Titaniums are one of my favorite guns of all times. I'm really thinking about making one of those uh, in .357 my general carry gun. I think it would be much more comfortable to carry uh, than a .45. And then all of the things come up that people generally debate about this. Oh, well, what about, what about reloading speed? Look, if you can't put six rounds into your target effectively... Uh, at handgun ranges, you're probably not going to be reloading anything anyway. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for high-capacity magazines. I'm saying that everything is situational. I'm saying if you're going to carry uh, a weapon with high capacity and a larger frame when you're wearing a three-piece suit and it's easy to conceal, fine. You're wearing baggy winter clothing, fine. That starts to break down, though, again, board shorts and tank tops. Do you always dress in a way that makes it easy to conceal a full-size weapon? So, I like the 38 357 uh, interchangeability. I like the 38 for practice. I see it as a damn fine defensive round. I really do. But I also know the 357 is better. I can put it in the same frame. So, I would choose it because there's no real differentiator 
other than I'm choosing something less suited for the job. So unlike, okay, well, I'm going to drop down to a 380 or even a 32, right, in one of the little tiny Caltech frames because I can carry it. Unlike that, I'm at a place where the difference in the two frames is almost indiscernible. So I'm going to go to the more powerful round. 40 Smith and Wesson. Again, I said I would explain myself, but I said I don't like it. Um, here's why I don't like it. If I'm going to step up in power, I'm going to go all the way up to a 45 personally. Okay, And I'll explain why when I talk about the 45 in a minute. If I'm going to step down from the 45, I'm going down into that compact revolver, uh, compact 9mm, 380. Now, I know we can get some compactness in a 40. But I get more recoil, and I do not feel personally that I get enough additional lethality to make it worth it for the increased recoil and increased weight. And that, that's just how I personally feel. If you have a good 40 Smith & Wesson handgun of any make or variety, if you've practiced with it, if you've carried it, and it works for you, do I think you should do what Jack Spearco does and go out and get you know a, a small frame gun for when you're in light clothes and trade that 40 Smith on a 1911 and carry a 45 like I do? No, I'm not that arrogant. I'm not that arrogant to believe that my choice is right for you. I have no problem with it for you. So before I start hearing the just typing in 40 does this and stop, stop, don't send me, I'm not going to read them today. I can't, I just can't do it. Fine with your choice. Personally, not for me. Overall, it does everything it needs to do. And if that's what you want, fine. Just shoot it. I'll say that with any frame and any caliber. Shoot it before you buy it. Make sure and don't believe that if you're in a, in a, a lethal situation and you dump two 9mm into a person, if you would have dumped two 40s in the exact same spot, you're any safer. Don't make the decision for that reason because I just think it's complete crap. I also think the 40 had the potential to be one of the great handgun calibers, and it, it still is in its original form. It's called a 10mm. Now, this is a full-size gun, but the 10mm does step up the power enough for me to take the extra recoil. You know why we have the 40? Because the FBI started letting people in that were too small to uh, to be FBI agents, in my opinion. I'm sorry. If you're going to be a field agent out there in the FBI having to take down bad guys, you should have a certain amount of physicality capability. But instead, they started bringing in these limp-wristed guys and limp-wristed ladies. They took away the height and weight requirements. And uh, they did that about the same time, or just before, actually, they started evaluating a new round for field deployment. So the FBI starts evaluating the 10mm. This is a 10mm. It's a 40 Smith & Wesson with a slightly longer case, and the weapon it fires in is rated to higher pressures, so it can be loaded to higher pressures. The 10mm is to the 40 what the 357 is to the 38 Special, except you don't have interoperability. You can't put 40 Smith & Wessons in your 10mm handgun. That's a bad idea. We're looking at semi-autos versus revolvers. If somebody made a revolver, that fired the 10 millimeter, and somebody may have, you would be able to fire fire 40 Smith & Wesson in it. Same caliber, slightly shorter, lower pressure. So the FBI starts doing trials on these 10 millimeters, and they are awesome. The lethality is huge. It's it's just a hair under 41 Magnum performance. It's a it's a weapon that if there is a dual purpose gun, one that can be carried for self defense and hunting, it's a 10 millimeter auto. The frames are large, but you know they're large in the realm of a 1911 large. If you carry a 1911, you could carry a 10 millimeter. But these agents, the smaller of them, 
couldn't get their hands on the grips right. So they brought down... Now, actually, this is what I would recommend, right? It should be whatever fits you. So the other problem with the 10mm with law enforcement was it had over-penetration. It was so powerful, it was more likely to go through the target. So they started testing it with reduced loads. And then once they determined, like, kind of the, the, the velocity, and I, you know, I was being too hard on the FBI there, because this is what they really did. Once they determined the velocity energy that they wanted, they realized they didn't need the longer case. So they went to a shorter case, more compact frame, less weight, and they still kept that additional lethality over, you know, 38 Special and uh, 9 millimeter. And that's why they made that choice. But that's how the 10 millimeter went from being, like, was going to be the next great handgun cartridge to being kind of a niche thing. Because whatever government adopts will do well. And if you think about it, everything we're talking about has been used by the government except the 380. And the 380 is a baby 9 millimeter. 9 millimeter, 38, 357. So the 38 created the 357. 38s were used by police departments all over the country for 50 years. Um, some stepped up 357, some didn't. Same thing with limp-wristed people that can't shoot the damn things. Um, and then the 40 being adopted by the FBI and law enforcement in general made it kind of king. But the 10 millimeter, I don't have it in my notes, but I have to say, if you're a bigger guy and you have the type of clothing where you can carry it and you're using a good frangible round that won't over-penetrate, what an awesome gun. It really is. My personal choice is a 45, 1911, and I'll tell you why. It's not because I believe a bigger hole is a better hole. It's not that I carry a 45 because they don't make a 46. It's not any of the typical reasons that somebody gives as to why they would carry a high caliber, um, powerful handgun like 45 and a full size frame like a 1911. I carry a 1911 because when I was eight years old, my grandfather put one in my hand and started teaching me how to shoot it. And from the time I was eight years old until I went off to the army, 90% of the time, if there was a handgun in my hand, it was either a Ruger single six 22 or a 1911. And I grew up shooting 1911s. And when I pick up a 1911, it points like it's part of my hand, like it's an extended finger. Every, every point on that weapon, the, the safety, the gear on, on the side where the thumbs lay, the, the, uh, the dimensions of the trigger guard, the way that it feels, It's weight, it's heft, it's balance. Everything in that gun is as natural to me as pointing my hand. Because I started shooting it when I was eight years old. This is the important part. Had that gun been a Colt Police Positive 357 revolver, which was something my father uh, had for self-defense, had I shot that, as frequently and was trained with it as much as the 45, I would feel the same way about that. Had I been born later and somebody put a Glock 19 in my hand, I would feel the same way about that. What I'm saying is there's people that have gone through so much of their life training with a particular frame, they have now developed muscle memory, touch memory, tactical memory, everything's based on that frame. And for me, if that's you, why fight nature? Does that mean that I don't own anything else and I don't shoot anything else? Does that mean if I pick up a Glock, I'm not decent with it? In fact, I can tell you that uh, when it comes to rapid fire, double tapping, things like that, of course I shoot a 9mm better. Why? Less recoil. No matter who you are, no matter how well you control recoil, if you reduce it, you control it better. So that, I think, is an important thing to take into account. Have you already been trained with something? 
And have you trained with it to a point where it fits you? If so, unless situationality changes it, why fight it? Stick with it. Um, next up today, I want to talk about some different things as we go through and actually making your choices. Next is the situational requirements. So what are the situational requirements? And I can't give you any more really than I already have, you know, because you have to make these for yourself. But how do you dress? Are you going to carry on concealed? Is it even possible for you to carry concealed? Right? Can you get a permit in the state you're in? If not, then a lot of things change. Do you have weather changes where you dress differently? Is it reasonable to think that maybe long term you need two handguns? If so, I would tell you your first handgun is the one for the smaller one. The one for the warm weather. Because I can still carry that weapon when I'm fully clothed. Okay? And I know some people are going to disagree. But it's okay if you disagree. It's your personal choice. But that's the way I, if I could only buy one, and I live in a climate where I'm going to spend a lot of time wearing really skimpy clothing, then I'm going to buy the weapon that fits me for the predominant period of time that still functions during the other period of time. But the situational requirements, these personal requirements are important. How that weapon fits your hands, I don't care what anybody says, is important. If I sit down with you and I show you a proper hand grip, and you have such small hands that on a particular frame, you can't get the grip right. You need a smaller frame weapon to be efficient with it. If you are intimidated by something, if something just doesn't work for you, that's personal, and nobody anywhere, I don't care who they write for, who they train for, where they've been, can change that. It's not right for you. You have to make a different choice. Next is a lethality requirement. I do think that if you can carry two weapons equally well for the situation and one has a higher lethality rating, carry the weapon with the higher lethality rating because we are all, as I started out with, we're already limiting, we're already limiting the lethality that we have at our disposal by carrying a handgun because we're only carrying the handgun because it's not reasonable to be carrying a carbine, a rifle, or a shotgun. So lethality always go to the more lethal round if everything else is equal. If everything else is not equal, then we have to bring them into the equation. So I would never, for instance, have a 357 Magnum uh, revolver loaded up with 38 specials on my person unless it was the only ammunition I could get my hands on. And that would be the most equal scenario I could, I could, I could come up with. But if I have two handguns, that I'm making a choice between one's a 380, one's a 9mm. The frames are identical in size. I've shot them. I can shoot them both equally well, or the differences are inconsequential for real world. Then I'm going to go with the 9mm. And then people would say, well, why won't you step up to the 40? Because again, we go back to personal requirements. Personal issue. Again, I have nothing against your 40. And if I didn't mention you're around, you carry a 357 SIG or anything else, it's fine. It's okay. But these are the things to think about. Next is capacity. I think it's the most overrated and least understood factor. And it goes back to people not understanding the shit on TV ain't real and it doesn't work that way. I think it's, it's, it's the concept of, you know, um, thinking that you're going to be like some kind of Navy SEAL and, and running an assault. Most of the people that are like, oh, I need the most capacity I can get. 
I might have to, to, to someday assault in this, uh, another party in a dangerous situation. I don't want to be running out of ammo. Most of those people will never assault anything in their lives other than the buffet at Golden Corral or Bob's Big Boy. And that's the truth. Lethal situations in the real world are fast, ugly, dangerous. Close quarters, and they end quickly. You either take out the threat, or the threat takes you out. Again, if everything's equal, and I've got two revolvers, and one has a seventh round in it, and it doesn't cost me a lot in weight or size, fine. If I've got two uh, handguns, and one has managed to sneak an extra two into the magazine without really increasing the weight or lot, other than the weight of the ammo itself, fine, I'll go with the capacity increase. But I'm not going to make a decision on it alone. Because we're not those freaks that want to go kill a bunch of people. Now, is that anti-gun rhetoric? No. And does that mean you can't have high-capacity magazines? No. Because I've got an AR-15, actually I've got two of them, and I've got a stack of 30-round PMAGs. Right? I've got a Glock with a 30-round magazine. But it doesn't carry very well, does it? Could there be a situation where that's necessary? Yes. Does it matter if it's necessary? No. Because if it's what you want and it's legal, you should be able to have it. As long as you're not a freaking nut. That has been writing letters to people threatening them. Fine. You can have whatever you want. It's America. Believe in the Second Amendment. But the practical nature for on-body carry, all I'm saying is it's over-freaking-rated. Next one. Uh, deciding when it comes to money between new versus used. As long as you know how to field strip that gun, you can take it apart, you know what to look for to inspect it, and the person you're buying it from will let you shoot it. And I mean, when I say shoot it, I don't mean put a magazine through it, I mean throw 100 rounds through it. If you can save money by buying a used handgun, do it. You're going to use it anyway. And a lot of the used handguns out there have been fired maybe a box of shells or less through them. I found used handguns that I could find no indication that it was ever fired, maybe then tested at the factory. No firing pinware. Cosmoline still in the barrel. And you could save money on that. That's fine. If you do not know weapons well, you better take somebody with you anyway if you're buying new. But when it comes to use, you really need someone looking at it that knows what to look for. I'll tell you that when I bought my last AR-15, Brian from ITS Tactical went with me. And he looked for some things in the bolt carrier, in the bolt, that I didn't know to look for. Even though I was an Army soldier. Even though I could strip down an AR platform in under two minutes and put it back together. I'd do it blindfolded. Honest to God, I really can. Because it ain't that hard. But there were And there were certain things I knew to look for, but there were certain things... That because I'm not an AR enthusiast that sits around and, and, and kits them up all the time, that he knew to look for that I didn't. No matter how much you think you know, there's probably someone that knows more, and if you can take them with you, do it, especially when you're looking at used weapons. I think there's certain weapons that are safer used purchases than others. Semi-autos are more complex. They have more points of failure. So they have more things that could be wrong that are difficult to see. A revolver is a very simple tool. That's part of one of the things that make it inherently a good tool. It's simplicity. Um, if it if it's timed right and it fires well 
and everything works, odds are there's nothing wrong with it, and you don't see a lot of people with a lot of problems with revolvers. They're a safer used buy, in my opinion. Again, my opinion. Uh, but th these are definitely some more things to think about. Choosing between cheap, mid-priced, expensive. I think expensive is dumb, unless you are a professional or a target shooter, or you just have something you really want, and you're buying it because you want to. I think cheap is almost equally stupid. I say almost, because I can always spend less. Sometimes I can't spend more. So I've been actually a pretty good fan of the high point, especially the 9mm, the C9. People call them all kinds of things, jam-o-matics, etc. I just saw some videos on YouTube. The things these people did to these things were unbelievable. And to get them to fail, it was, I mean, they put a bolt in the barrel and banged it in and fired it. It blew the bolt out and it still functioned. This was a C9, high point. Um, I'm not advising you to do that. They did it with a vice and a string and they were behind cover when they did it. I'll see if I can dig those up. Um, but it was pretty impressive what they did to them. My problem with a high point is less about reliability and more about functionality. They're, it's like carrying a brick. It's a, It looks small, but it doesn't carry small. So, to me, the high points and, and, and things like them, the ghetto glocks, they call them, um, they're okay. If you have $120 bucks burning a hole in your pocket and you want something fun to shoot, they're okay for that. They're actually pretty nice for training shooters. When they do have failures, it's generally because the person holding it, because they're um, a recoil-activated weapon, and the, the, the wrist isn't stiff enough. So if you learn to shoot one, you learn form and you learn lock very, very well. I have no problems firing high points. Uh, I never get malfunctions. I get less malfunctions with a high point than I have with, with shooting some of the SIGs. And you get mad, but I'm just telling you my results. But it doesn't carry well. Now, if it's something you're going to put in a nightstand, well, that's fine. But again, if I want to put it in a nightstand for $115, $120, bucks, I could buy a beat-up old-used pump shotgun and I'm better suited. So again, situationality. So I'm not big on the really cheap stuff. The uh, Bursa 380 I carry, if it was $100 more, I would have paid $100 more for it. And I think that's when we look at lower-cost weapons. Would you be willing to pay more for it if it cost more? Is it just a good deal? And if so, don't stare a gift horse in the mouth. But I think most of us will do well Looking in the middle price points from the known manufacturers. I don't care if you hate them. Taurus makes damn good guns. And I don't care who said they saw one blow apart. They're probably full of crap. Or it was abused. It wasn't taken care of. And if you've seen one blow apart, I've seen, I saw a Charles Daly, uh, 45 that was about a $2,200 slicked up gun come apart once. Right? So am I going to not buy Charles Daly? No. I mean, that's just dumb. So Taurus, Smith and Wesson, um, Colt, Rossi even makes good revolvers. I'm not hip on much else they do, but Rossi makes decent revolvers. Uh, you know, in fact, if it's a well-known name brand, they build a good product. Here's what we have to understand about firearms manufacturers. Nobody that manufactures anything anywhere is more liable for damages than a firearms manufacturer that fails to do their job properly. So that means that most firearms function well and don't explode in people's faces because people that built firearms like that would swiftly find themselves out of business due to lawsuits. And this is another one that gets overthought. So, um, Beretta, right, SIG, I mean, all of these guys are great. XD, Glock, 
Springfield, uh, Springfield XD, same thing. Um, and if I haven't named yours, don't get upset. My point here isn't really, these are the list of things you can buy from. My, my point is, the well-known, well-marketed, long-term name brand firearms and everything in that class from, you know, $400 to $800 for most of what we would carry and coming down into the, I mean, Caltech is, is a, is an awesome manufacturer. I don't care. They're affordable. I'm not going to bash them because they're affordable. They make some really great guns, and some of them that um, allow you to carry when you wouldn't be able to carry. They have a little 38, a little 380, and a 32 that are kind of on the same frame. You can buy a clip for it. It basically clips in your pocket, you know, like a knife would. And people will put it down, but again, it's better than a knife in a self-defense situation. You get a lot of recoil out of the 380. Hell yeah, that thing's light. But if I'm trying to defend myself, I'm not really worried about recoil during that defensive point. So I'm, what I'm saying is, don't bash the lower price manufacturers, but understand their limitations are often about the functionality of the gun rather than its reliability. The, the, the reliability of a, of, a, of a high tech is subject to your personal opinion, your personal experience. All I can tell you is every one of them I've ever picked up, when I pull the trigger, they go bang. And when I pull the trigger three times, they go bang, bang, bang. And what more can I ask for? But they don't make sense as a carry gun. And any place I'm going to use a gun, it's not going to be a carry. So I don't really, they're like a gun that I like, but I don't really have a reason for it. All right? Uh, next is, when you're practicing, you've got to practice deployment and firing. And this is often a challenge for people because when you go to a gun range, often you cannot draw the weapon from the holster and fire. They have rules against that. You cannot double tap. You cannot move. You have to stay put. You can't lay down. You can't come, come around a corner. You can't do anything. So you either have to find a range that allows that, Do a lot of dry fire and dummy round practice, and both of those are good things to do. But my favorite way around this is airsoft. And I hear people poo-poo in airsoft all the time, and I don't think they get it. First of all, let me tell you something about airsoft. Airsoft pellets can be influenced by minor movements more than firing a conventional firearm, in my experience. It's easier to throw your shot off. It makes you concentrate and focus harder. You don't deal with the recoil, but you deal generally with a lighter frame weapon unless you get into the expensive metal frame ones, and you deal with a situation where you have to do a better job put rounds on the target. You can buy them in the exact same dimensions, and you can sit in your backyard, and you can set up multiple scenarios, and you can do anything you want safely. Safety glasses, and don't shoot at people. And if you do those two things, don't shoot the neighbor's cat or the neighbor's window, you can go nuts with them. And you can set up any scenario you want. You can do it over and over and over again. So I really recommend training with Airsoft. Next, I recommend you get professional training. Professional training is less to me about what you learn while you're there and what you come away being able to do. It's more about by going through good professional training, you learn to train yourself. You go take a course for two days. They're not going to turn you into a championship quality shooter in two days. It's not possible. It takes discipline and, 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 and continued practice to get better, especially with handguns, even more so than rifles. They're less forgiving when you make errors. You have a shorter sighting plane. It's easy. You don't have less points of contact with the body. There's so many reasons that it's more difficult to effectively and continuously become better with a handgun than a rifle. 
So you've got to practice. So professional training is about learning how to train yourself, in my view. And then the last thing I want to talk to you about today is it's kind of summing everything up. In the end, a gun is only a tool. A gun is only a tool. It will, like I started out with, it will not fix your inadequacies. It will not compensate for the fact that you live in fear. And as a tool, I can take a crappy high point and put it in the hands of a highly qualified operator. And I can take a slicked up, you know, Charles Daly and put it in the hand of an incompetent boob. And who's going to do a better job? The highly trained operator. It's just a tool. You are the real weapon. Your mind, your training, your thought process, and where you're coming from emotionally and spiritually. And I don't put anybody, any religion on anybody when I say spiritual. My faith is something you guys probably, most of you have no idea. Right? It's probably not what you think. I'll put it to you that way. And the fact that you don't know says something. But I believe that no matter what you believe, there's a spiritual component to humans. I think even the atheist has some level of spirituality. They just maybe aren't even aware of. There is something innate in human beings. And if you don't have that right, so that you walk with confidence but understand your limitations, it's about confidence and humility at the same time. If you don't have that balance, the gun won't help you. When the time comes to need it, you'll fail to use it properly. Or you'll fail to use it at all. You'll be like the person with the fire extinguisher that when they start to get a small kitchen fire, runs out of their home, and the whole house burns down and the fire extinguisher with it. You have to... And it's not about training per se. That is a component of it. What I'm talking about is much, much deeper. You have to be willing to acknowledge the fact that you and others have a right to life. And you have to believe that in your core. And you have to believe that everybody has that right until the point where they choose to take that very right of safety and life away from another. And that when that person makes that choice, they've made your decision for you to act in defense of yourself or others. Confident people can do that. People who are empowered and believe in themselves and believe in others can do that. Anybody else capable of taking a life without that balance, is nothing but a freaking thug. And I hope when that person acts, the well-balanced, well-armed, prepared person is around. Because I want you to understand the biggest fact about carrying a gun. And I've gotten flack about this statement before. But it's true. You are more likely to have the opportunity to use your weapon to save the life of someone else than to save the life of yourself. I don't care who you are. I don't care how well trained you are. If somebody walks up behind you and shoots you, you're dead before you can draw your weapon. If somebody walks up to you and hits you over the head with a bat, you'll never be able to draw your weapon. Stabbed in the back. Jumped by six guys. 
whenever you're carrying a weapon, understand there will be a gun at every fight you're ever in because you brought it. You can get a situation where it can be taken away from you. The situation where a person is most likely going to be able to effectively defend life and property is going to be where they are one of an observer first. You're at a place and the guy that walks in and starts shooting doesn't shoot you first. You can react. You can move. You can get the hell off the X, the way James Yeager says. You can take cover and you can return fire. If you get the first one, center of mass, it's probably the last bad day of your life. And that's why the person that carries a weapon or is armed, even if you don't carry, you can only be armed in your home. You understand that the defense is about more than yourself. It's about your family. It's about strangers you've never met, but you believe they have the inherent right to life and safety as well. It's about your fellow countrymen. It's about your brother and sister that you've never met, but your brothers and sisters because you both inhabit planet Earth. And these rights that we speak of in America as American rights, we know are not American rights, they are human rights. The right to life, liberty, and self-defense of those is not an American right given to you by your Constitution. It is a human right protected by your Constitution. And if you don't understand the difference of that, please learn before you go around arming yourself. And if you are not willing to defend the life of others, ask yourself why. I won't tell you what to do about it. Please ask yourself why. Something's wrong. And take the self-discipline to work through it. And I think most people will help others. If we won't help others, none of what we do really matters. We, prefer, we prepare on this show all the time. We talk about preparing if the shit hits the fan. But if some semblance of humanity doesn't remain, what's the point? These are the deeper things to think about when you're buying that next handgun. It's not just about the one that looked coolest in the magazine or the one you saw on the TV set or the one your Navy SEAL buddy told you to buy. It's about yourself and it's about your internal self as much as your external self. I don't care if it's your first one or your 15th. These are the things to evaluate when choosing that next handgun. Told you this show would be a little bit different. I hope you got a lot out of it, though. I hope it's made you think. And if you've enjoyed it, please consider sharing it with others. I think this might be a good one to reach outside the general preparedness marketplace with. The people that are just into guns. A new way of looking at an old question. Which gun is right for me? And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. 
Shine is you.